Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not, he, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the, the, the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward, uh, toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he, he knows our fame, our, excuse me, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Okay, good morning, everybody. We're really happy to be together today. I really appreciate uh, the presence of each person. Um, appreciate all that Corey's doing to facilitate our, our uh, coordinate our, our time together. Uh, thank you for all the, the uh, participation. Excellent uh, Lord's Supper talk, Charlie. Very uplifting, brought out a lot of connections I never thought about before. So, um, you know, God is, is many things. Um, it, it stands to reason that we would, the more we think about God and contemplate God, whether we're doing it through scripture or through our relationships with human beings or through nature or, you know, food we talked about last week, just everything. Um, the more we think about God, the more facets of God's nature and being and activity in our world we're going to see. And last week we talked about God as a gift giver, and, and we explored how uh, this provides yet another incentive for worshiping God. And of course, worship uh, is our church-wide emphasis, our theme for the year 2020. Did anybody realize that was our theme? Just kidding. And it's starting to seem redundant, but there are just so many aspects to worship that we could talk about it for the next 15 years and never exhaust it. It's kind of in a way what the whole Bible is about. And as we saw last week, God's greatest gift, if he's the gift giver, his greatest gift is actually himself. It's his presence with us. It's his desire to be in a real relationship with us. And one of the ways the scriptures characterize this relationship between God and his people is that of father to children. God the Father, we are his children. And that's how often the Bible characterizes, or one of the ways it characterizes that relationship. And so this morning, we turn our attention to a psalm, Psalm 103, that links together our worship of God on the one hand with the fatherhood of God on the other hand. How is worship related to God's fatherhood? And the psalm, Psalm 103, we didn't see the whole thing. It's a long psalm, so we're not going to read the whole thing uh, you know, we will have read the whole thing by the time we get to today's uh, sermon's conclusion by virtue of just the various excerpts we read. But uh, Paul read uh, some of it a second ago. It begins and ends, Psalm 103 begins and ends with an exhortation to, quote, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the psalmist says in verse, verses 1 and 2. And then at the end of the uh, psalm in verses 20 through 22, he repeats that. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. The word bless, the Hebrew verb bless, comes from the word barak. And that word comes, is, is a root, which means to kneel, um, to kneel down as, a, as in adoration of someone or something. 
And so it can also be translated bless, as the English Standard Version does here in Psalm 103, verse 1, or to praise. So it very much is connected to this, you know, collage of words that have to do with, with worshiping God. And that's really what this psalm is about, as are many of the psalms. Well, the question we want to ask this morning is this. What do we see in God's fatherhood that makes God so worthy of our worship? What makes the Heavenly Father worthy of worship uh, by virtue of his fatherhood? What is it about that kind of fatherhood that, uh, that makes him uh, worthy of our adoration and worship? So, um, <clears throat> first of all, it's God's goodness. It's God's goodness. Um, Psalm 103, uh, beginning in verse 2, talks about his benefits. We see his goodness in all of these benefits. In fact, the psalmist is saying to himself in verse 2, right at the outset of the psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And he begins to enumerate the benefits that God gives his children, that God gives his people, human beings that are in relationship with him. God, for one, forgives all our iniquities. The word iniquity is not a word we may use uh, that often nowadays. It's the idea of a, of, a, of a disregard for God's law. It's the idea of wickedness, just unruly people who do what they want and ignore God. We all have iniquity. Well, guess what? One of the benefits of God, this Father, is that he forgives iniquity. Secondly, in verse 3, he heals all your diseases. Think about that. A, a God who can not only and, and will not only forgive your iniquity, but heal all of your diseases. And then he says in verse four, he redeems your life from the pit, which is a way of saying he, he redeems us from uh, perdition, from our own destructive path. I think you can make a good biblical case that human beings, once we reach an age of being able to choose what we're going to do, um, we are basically uh, taking our own lives and often the lives of those around us into the pit. Um, that's what we do. We don't always think that way. We, we don't like to hear that. But the Bible starts with that. I think that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, first thing, the basis for the rest of the sermon in Matthew 5 is, blessed are the poor in spirit. He can work with people who see that they don't have any answers, that their life is, in fact, on their own, going into the pit. Well, guess what? God, our Father, redeems our lives from this kind of destructive trajectory that we put it on. Um, now, the word uh, steadfast love occurs here. We talk about this, it seems like, every third or fourth week, but there's a reason that there are hundreds of times in the Old Testament where this is the word used to describe God. He crowns us with steadfast love. So this is where all of the goodness of God emanates from. Why is he so good? Well, he's just characterized by this Hebrew word, he said that we talk about from time to time, which means God's unfailing love or God's covenant love. Um, it's translated differently in different versions. So if you're using the New American Standard or the King James, I think they say something like loving kindness. The NIV just says love. I don't think that quite captures the, the kind of love it is. It is a love that is unfailing. It's a love that is there no matter what. It's God swore himself in this covenant to love us in this way. And guess what? He will always do that. It's not just, I love you. It's, this is an unfailing, steadfast love. And that's the word that appears all over the place in uh, the, the uh, Old Testament that uh, is used to characterize, one of the words used to characterize God. That's where this goodness comes from. It, it occurs four times just in Psalm 103, in verse 8, 11, 17, as well as here in verse 4. 
So basically what it's saying is God, your heavenly father, is a God characterized fundamentally by steadfast love. That's just his, his inherent trait. And I want to contrast that with many earthly fathers. Um, earthly fathers don't always have this kind of steadfast love. They can be aloof. Uh, they can be angry. They can be abusive. They can be even physically absent. They can just go AWOL and a child grows up without a father. I mean, what percentage of people in our own country does that kind of experience with a father characterize? I, I, it's got to be a good bit more than half. Um, virtually every other person I know has some sort of bad experience with uh, th their father. And the fact is, earthly fathers, we can spin it any way we want, but they're often out for themselves. Uh, not maybe all the time, may, not maybe most of the time, but they are sin-struck, uh, self-oriented human beings. Fathers come from a larger pool called humans, <laughs> and humans are often, uh, you know, very uh, focused on themselves. And, 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 and I think this is why um, so many people's experience makes it difficult for them to be attracted to a God who is characterized in the Bible as a father. That's close to a deal breaker for a good many people. Maybe not you. Maybe you can't relate to this. There are plenty of people who can. Uh, many people in our own congregation, um, as you know, didn't have a great, we don't have any choice who our father is. I mean, there's no culpability or guilt there. It's just, it, it is what it is. Uh, an author named James Brian Smith wrote a little book that I've been reading here lately. Um, and he relates a heartbreaking story um, that he experienced as a, as a Bible lecturer, as a teacher. Um, and it's heartbreaking in part because it's all too common. And he, he had concluded a day of, of teaching on prayer. I don't know where it was, some church or some seminary or something. He'd been teaching all day on lecturing on prayer. And then he decided to conclude his lecture, his day of lecturing, with a prayer that began, quote, Dear Heavenly Father. How many of us have prayed our prayers beginning with the words, Dear God, or Dear Heavenly Father? Well, after he finished, a woman uh, weeping, a tearful woman, comes up to him and says, uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Smith, I, I love what you taught today about prayer, but when you began your prayer with the words, Heavenly Father, when you refer to God as Father, you completely lost me. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I had a terrible father, and I, I, I lock up. I can't go any further than hearing that God's supposed to be some kind of father. And here's what he writes in his book about this experience and his response to it. If theologically, he says, while I felt badly for this woman, not using the word father is not the solution. The problem is that we begin with our understanding of what father means, and then we project that onto God. So that's often what human beings do. He says, that's not how it ought to work. Long before God made humankind, God existed as father, son, and spirit, the three in one, which some people call the Trinity. The relationship between Jesus and God has been defined by Jesus as that of father and son. Well, that relationship existed before any human male had offspring. So in the conventional sense of what fatherhood means, God as father and Jesus as son, as son existed before any human father and son or daughter for that matter existed. Therefore, fatherhood is, get this, fatherhood is first defined by God and Jesus not by Adam, the first human being, and his children. So we often do this in reverse. 
Um, I think that's a good way to think about it. And, and this, this Father, the Heavenly Father, God is a being who wants to, fundamentally desires to give us good things, forget not all of his benefits. Why? The psalmist says in verse 5, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God wants to give you good things. He wants to fulfill you and satisfy you and rejuvenate you and renew you. This reminds me a lot of what Jesus says near the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, when he is comparing or contrasting, uh, maybe a little of both, God's fatherhood with the way er earthly fathers operate. He says, or which, of, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? What kind of father gives a hungry child a rock to eat? Verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Well, he says this, if you then, human fathers who are evil, who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So God, our father, is described by goodness. But God isn't just good. This psalm tells us that God is also great. There's a difference between good and great. Now, sometimes we just use great to be the next step in goodness, right? We go, wow, that's good. No, it was great. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean great in the sense of, of ponderous, of awesome, of big and powerful, great, like a great man, a great king, a great leader, uh, a great empire, right? Um, something that is, is not just good in the sense of not bad, but but magnificent and mighty and powerful. The point being that God, this heavenly father, is sufficiently powerful, is sufficiently resourceful to be trustworthy. There's something there, right, that can, come, can be brought to bear because God's heart is good toward us uh, on our behalf. Fact is, many human fathers, despite their good intentions, despite their sincere hearts and their desire to, to, to meet the needs of their children, are not always able to provide everything their children need. So there's a, there's a question of desire in your heart and your sincerity on the one hand, whether you're good or bad. And then there's the question of how much wherewithal, how much ability or capability does the father have to bring to bear on his good intentions? And the fact is a lot of human fathers uh, lack the wherewithal. They lack the capability to, uh, to follow through on what may be good intentions or to make good on their promises or to do right by their children. Uh, you know, sometimes we fail our children. Maybe you, you've experienced this as a father or mother. Maybe you've experienced it as a child. Maybe you don't have children yet, but you can, you can think back to times when you think, my parents didn't really do right by me that time. That, they missed that one. Maybe there were a lot of those in your case. Uh, we, we all have different backgrounds and none of us choose them. But sometimes, I'm speaking now as a father myself, we fail our children not because we're not sincerely trying, it's just because we lack the ability. You know, maybe we lack uh, the wisdom necessary to navigate a difficult challenge. We're trying, we're praying, we're studying, we're reading, we're getting advice, and we just lack the wisdom. Maybe we lack the strength, the energy to keep keeping on in seemingly, you know, endless difficult seasons of our child's life. And we, we just don't, uh, we don't have the, the wherewithal physically you know, emotionally, psychologically to keep keeping on. Maybe we lack the financial resources or the time. Think about a single parent who's trying to be the breadwinner and raise the child. Um, that's tough. 
It, it may not be an intention problem, it's just a wherewithal problem. Maybe we lack the health we need. Think of all the parents who would uh, help their children, but they're struggling themselves with poor health. And the fact is all human beings, and so that would include then all human endeavors, anything done by a human being, all of those things are transitory. They are ephemeral. They're not solid things that we can always bank on. Psalm 103 says this about humanity. As for man, verse 15, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. In other words, we, think, we like to think we make these big marks. And the psalmist says that basically our lives, our days, they're like grass. They're impermanent. They're weak. First Peter says something similar, quoting Isaiah 40, which says almost the exact same thing. Um, for Christians, over in First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 24, Peter writes this, All flesh is like grass. And all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. So you think about some pretty wildflower growing in, in you know, uh, along the side of the highway, and you know, you don't even notice it until one day you go by and it's starting to bloom, and you think, oh, that's pretty. Um, something happens, the wind blows, there's a drought, it, it goes through a week or two of its bloom period, and you know, the flower's gone. And even if, even if the flower is in its prime, if the stalk that holds it is compromised, the flower falls. So the glory of, the, of this grass, the flower, not just uh, the flower itself, but the things it produces, the things it does, the things it tries to accomplish, all of that withers and fails. But God is a different kind of being. That's why it says the word of the Lord remains forever. It's not transitory. It's not ephemeral. It is always going to be here. He is trustworthy. He's a different kind of being, and so that makes him a different kind of father. Psalm 109 in verse 19 says that God is a God who has dominion, sovereignty, rule. All these words are words of power and authority and ability. In fact, he is the ruler of the entire universe. The Lord, verse 19 says, has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Talk about greatness. He is the greatest one. And I want you to think about this. Uh, and then let's go ahead and read uh, verses 20 through 22. This is the conclusion of the psalm. He's gone from himself, bless the Lord, O my soul, to talking, you know, hey, we and us and that kind of uh, a voice. And then in verse 20, he starts talking to, so it's like the congregation uh, himself, then the congregation of Israel in the middle, and then in verse 20 through 22, he talks about everything in creation from the angels on down uh, to uh, the things in nature. Everything should bless the sovereign king of the universe. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. So people up, these beings in heaven who surround God in his heavenly court, he says, you bless the Lord. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works, nat nature, creation animals, plants, rocks, oceans, all of that should praise his name in all the places of his dominion. And you can tell by this psalm, his dominion is limitless. He is king, he is sovereign, he is ruler, he is in power over everything in the universe. And so the psalmist concludes, bless the Lord, O my soul. So think about this. 
you and I, if we're followers of God, if we're Christians, we are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. That's your real daddy, the king of the universe. The one whose glory is spread across galaxies is your Abba Father. Moreover, this God who is our Father is a covenant-making God. He is a covenant-keeping God. His word endures forever. He has made promises to us. And despite our faithlessness, he remains faithful, as the New Testament puts it. In verse 17 of Psalm 103, he says, But the steadfast love, there's the word chesed again, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness is to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So his steadfast love is the attribute, the trait that makes his covenant eternally binding. He is not going to violate that. He, he is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps the covenant with his people. If God says something is true, it will come to pass, and we can take that to the bank. All right, now, there's a twist. You may have noticed in these two verses that there's one potentially problematic qualification, and it's this. These blessings are for those who fear him. Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is, for, for, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear or reverence or, or respect God like they should. Uh, verse 18, it is um, for people who keep his covenant. So he's, he's got his half. We, we need to keep our half. It's for people who do his commandments. Yikes. How many of us have always showed God the proper fear, as verse 17 puts it. Is your life 24-7 about reverencing God? How many of us have perfectly kept his covenant, meaning we flawlessly, flawlessly obeyed his commandments? How many of us? And if we think we have, we're, we're, we need to know we are contradicted by a host of Bible passages, not a couple like it's woven throughout the fabric of Scripture. One of the most fundamental errors we can commit, one of the most fundamental falsehoods we can espouse is to believe we don't really have a righteousness problem. We don't have an obedience problem. We don't have a holiness problem. We don't have um, a reverence problem. To a man, to a woman, we are sinners. And so that's a problem if all of this wonderful fatherhood of this uh, good but also great God if we stop right there. Thankfully, we don't have to stop right there. And as you guessed it, I have three points. And, and this one addresses kind of the dilemma we're in. What are we to do? Well, the third trait I want to talk about that comes out of this psalm very uh, abundantly is God's grace. So God is not only a good God, a good father, rather, a great father, but he is a grace-filled father, a father who is characterized by grace. And this is really going to be the main point of this sermon. So notice now verse 13. Verse 13. I'm going to actually read this whole section, verses 7 through 14. Um, and then we'll, we'll focus on the highlighted passage in verse 13. Because this really is a section, uh, a whole section of Psalm uh, 103 on the grace of God. So let's begin there in verse 7. He made known, God made known his ways to Moses. Remember, Moses is the lawgiver, the, 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 God, the, the man that God chose to uh, lead the Israelites out of uh, Egyptian bondage and lead them across 
the Red Sea, or through the waters of the Red Sea, as God miraculously parted them and fed them in the wilderness and gave them the promise, took them to the brink of the promised land and all that. That's Moses. He got the law of God on Mount Sinai and so on. And we read here, and you know, the psalmist is taking Israelites, uh, Jews, back to their history. Verse 7, he made known, God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, gracious verse 8, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And here's the verse I want to focus on. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. Your version may say he knows how we are formed. And he remembers that we are dust. Remember Genesis 1? God make, makes humanity out of the, the stuff that all creation is made out of. Dirt is the idiom in Genesis 1. We might say, you know, the periodic table of the elements. Stuff. We're, we're composed of matter, like uh, everything we eat and use and, and, uh, and so on. And God knows that. Uh, and he has compassion on us. He, he, he shows he's a father who shows compassion to his children. So really, verse 13, about the compassionate father that God is, uh, appears in a whole section here on the screen now, a whole section which is about God's grace, the way God responds to sin. That's the actual context for the psalmist characterizing God as father in, in verses 13 and 14. Now, we're talking about God as a compassionate father who's characterized by grace. What does that mean about the way God views sin? Does that mean God just winks at sin? That God just ignores sin? It's no big deal to God? That is not the case at all. And if you look at this English word, uh, compassion, that we see two times in verse 13, the fact that God has compassion to his children when we mess up, when we sin, that's what the context is about our sin and how God regards it. The fact that he has compassion uh, it, it is a, a tacit admission, an implicit statement that sin's a big problem because you know what compassion means? The English word, at least, as we've talked about many times, means to suffer with. Compassion, to suffer with. So God is suffering with us in our sin. If you've raised children and you see them getting into something they shouldn't be, something worrisome, some habit, some friends, some peer group, uh, some bad influences, you, you don't just get angry. Uh, in fact, that's not your main emotion. At least it isn't mine. Maybe I'm not speaking for everybody. I, I, I probably am. It Really, it's more concern and worry. You don't want to see the children hurt themselves. And so, yeah, you, you hate sin. You hate them going down the wrong path, not because just shame on you. That's a shallow, theologically shallow view of sin. I'm going to punish you. That's very thin and hollow and brittle. What's much deeper and robust and, and expansive, and I would argue biblical, is this idea that God is Father, and so He is suffering with us in our sins because sin causes suffering. But He's not an aloof God or an absent God who just goes, well, then I'm leaving you. No, it, it hurts Him because He loves us and He's worried it may hurt us. That's just the nature of sin, which is sort of anti-God thinking, anti-God actions. Um, so. Uh, <clears throat> God knows it sends a problem. It causes suffering. It distorts his design for us. And frankly, for other people, 
in the wake of our sins and for other things in creation that, you know, anytime we sin, we're not usually isolated like we think. We're, they're ramification, like, uh, you know, a pebble thrown into a pond. It just ramifies out in ways that we can never imagine. A lot like Jephthah's vow did. He didn't expect to find his daughter coming out the door when he came home. Um, and, and moreover, this statement that God showed is a father who shows compassion to his children, he's not contradicting. The psalmist is not contradicting what he's going to say uh, just four verses later in verses 17 and 18, where, we, where you know, we already read it. Uh, we're to fear God. We're to keep his commandments. We're to keep the covenant. Is he contradicting that right here? Because God is gracious and grace-filled in his response to our sin, does that mean he, he doesn't care about sin? Not at all. It needs grace because it's such a problem. And, and I do want us to, to get the main point here. Because still, the ultimate takeaway point here is that God's steadfast love, his unfailing love, causes him, leads him to radically separate our sins from us. I think a lot of times when we think about our sins, we feel so much guilt, so much shame, so much regret, that we see ourselves as attached to our sins. We picture God looking down on us when we're praying at night or whatever, uh, when we need something and we're, we're petitioning God for it, some anxiety, some worry, whatever it is, we often see ourselves as, as connected to our sins, like inextricably. Let me suggest to you that that's not the way God sees us. God's steadfast love causes him to separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Look now at Psalm 103, beginning in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's the Bible. Read that again. God, what are, we may respond, you know, we may be stuck on our sins, fixated on our sins, whether it's our sins we've committed and the guilt we feel, or whether it's the, the sins that have victimized us and the, you know, the, the, the hurt we feel and um, the desire for vengeance we feel, the bitterness we feel, whatever. That's still being fixated on sin either way. God, though, in contrast to human beings, does not deal with us according to our sins. In fact, we read this, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? Remember those lessons Corey did and others have done about, and Nick's talked about this, about the, the most remote galaxies being light years away. By the time we're seeing that light, it's eons old. How high are the heavens? What does that even mean? Well, that's how great that distance, heaven to earth, is, is the greatness of God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. When he sees us, he isn't saying just sin. In fact, those have been separated as far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? When you go down to Wilmington, North Carolina, down at the coast, and you're on I-40, and you're coming back home from your trip to the beach, I've always not found it interesting that on I-40, right as you're coming out of Wilmington, there is a sign that says, Barstow, California, 2,500-some-odd miles. Uh, that's the other end of I-40. It's nearly L.A., I think. Um, we could ask uh, the Beards or somebody who's from California, but I think it's like in near, near L.A., an hour from L.A. or something like that. That's a long way, 2,500 miles. But, you know, that's not, that's not the West for people. Hawaiians are a lot farther West than Californians, and you can keep going. So how far is East from West? He's not talking about specific places. He's just saying these two ordinal points on the compass 
he's trying to say, get your mind around this. You can't get your mind around it. Um, you, 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 you are so separate in God's mind from your sins because of God's nature. Now, we human beings, and I would say even religious folks, and I think in some cases, especially religious people, have real trouble accepting this, accepting the fact that God can see us as separated from our sins. We tend to fixate on our sin. We, we struggle to believe that God isn't also fixated on our sin. He's just out to punish. That's his main thing. He's just looking to punish. He's looking to give you what you deserve. And that's the main thing. I think a lot of our theology, that's sort of the bedrock of the theology of many of us. Instead, we read that a limitless, endless expanse separates us from our sins. Ellen Davis, in a little piece, um, says, and commenting on Psalm 103, says this. And I think this is really interesting. It's a little piece called The Incongruity of Sin. She writes, it seems that God is not keeping such close score of our iniquities as we often suppose. This is a common but often overlooked error in the spiritual life. Treating sin as, the, as, as though it were the most interesting thing about myself or any other human being. Harboring guilt for my own sins and grudges about their sins. Imagining that God is eternally occupied with plans to get us back for them. But in fact, she writes, quoting now Psalm 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins. Again, the point isn't that God does not condone sin, or sorry, the point isn't that God condones sin. It's just that when he looks at us, sin's not the main thing he sees. Sin will not have the last word, not if God has anything to do with it. I mean, think back to when God has to discipline his obstinately wayward Israelite people because of the repeated rejection of his prophets and his loving warnings, and, and they go through captivity and exile in Babylon and all that. We read in Jeremiah 31 that he is yearning for them like a child, referring to them as Ephraim, one of the prominent tribes in Israel. He says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? Listen to the language, darling child. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Where does this grace come from, this unimaginably beautiful grace? Well, it is fundamental to God's basic character. It doesn't come from anywhere other than just the identity of God. This grace is who he is, and I don't, I don't think anything lighter than that or a statement less strong than that can capture it. So we go back now to Psalm 103, verse 7 and 8, and, and there's a reference here, an allusion it appears, back to the episode when an unsure Moses, maybe you remember this back in Exodus 32 through 34, Moses is kind of unsure about this calling he's been given, and so he appeals to God to tell him uh, God, tell, tell me more about you. Give me more information. In fact, he says, show me your ways. So that's what Psalm 103, 7 is talking about. The language is, is a direct quote from Exodus uh, 33, 34, which we'll see in a second. Let's read it. Psalm 103, 7. God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Okay? 
Um, back in Exodus 33, uh, Moses had said this to God, Exodus 33, 13, here in the blue box. Now, therefore, Moses says, if I have found favor in your sight, like if that's actually the case, hear this, please show me now your ways. What are you like? What are your ways? How do you operate? Who are you? That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that there's a nation back here behind me, and they're your people you're telling me. So let, let me know more. If we're going to do this, let me know more about you and your fundamental character, your ways, he puts it. And what God tells Moses after Moses ascends to Mount Sinai to meet him there to receive his instruction, his Torah, what God tells Moses is that his way, quote unquote, in other words, his fundamental nature is mercy and grace. Here it is, Exodus 34. I want you to notice how the language is exactly verbatim, the language from Psalm 103, verse 8. I've got them both in red. So picking it up in the second blue box there, this is Exodus 34. God's answering his request to show him his ways. It says in verse 4 of Exodus 34, that he, that is Moses, rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Remember, the name of the Lord is Yahweh. I am. That's the word Lord there, L-O-R-D. That's the Hebrew for it, right? So he proclaims the name of the Lord to Moses. It says in verse 6, that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. That is the name of God, the name of God. And look at the description. Here is fundamentally his, who he is, his identity, his ways that Moses requested requested the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in chesed and steadfast unfailing love that's exactly what psalm 103 verse 8 says the lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love right and i want you to notice moreover that this nature of god is built into the very name of god it's part of proclaiming the name or the identity of God. So uh, in verse 5, when it says that the Lord descended and proclaimed the name of the Lord, do you happen to remember what Psalm 103 says right in the verse, first verse? Here it is. The psalmist is saying to himself, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why is that? Well, later in verse 7, he's going to say, he showed his ways to Moses when he appeared and said, the name of the Lord, it's, the Lord, it's Yahweh, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, L-O-R-D, a God who abounds in loving kindness, who is merciful, who is gracious, um, and so on. So what does it mean to say that this is part of proclaiming God's name? Well, it's God's basic identity. The point is that God's name entails mercy and grace. That's who he is. And that's why the psalm calls on the psalmist himself to bless God because of his holy name. And folks, that is found, uh, that, that kind of statement that we read here in Psalm 103, harking back to Exodus 34, it's found all through the scriptures. Um, I'm not going to give you the list. I had them on here, but I don't want the thing to get too long. I do want you to remember, though, that, that this is uh, not least found in the teachings of Jesus himself, especially the parables of lost things in uh, Luke 15, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, or the prodigal son, as we often refer to it. Three stories. Unlike the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who always grumbled because Jesus, quote, welcomed 
sinners and ate with them. That's what Luke 15, 1 and 2 says. The whole uh, context for the parables are there. God, God loves lost things. He seeks out lost things. You guys are disparaging uh, the Son of God for doing this. That's actually who and what God does and who he is and what he does. God um, doesn't give the prodigal son what he deserves when he comes home, right? Instead, he welcomes him with these outrageous acts of grace and love. He gives him a robe and a ring, treats him like a king. That's basically putting him in a king's uh, uh, attire. He, he kills the fatted calf. They have a party, quote, with music and dancing. And it is the older brother, representative of the scribes and Pharisees, the conservative religious teachers who had these senses of propriety and purity that just basically functionally excluded grace. Um, they probably on paper wouldn't have, but they don't respond that way in this parable or many of the other teachings of Jesus. And what they're basically, what the older brother is saying is, this is unfair. He should have gotten what he deserves. God is not like that. God is a God of grace and mercy. He's like the father in the story of the prodigal son. In fact, Tim Keller's little book on the parable of the prodigal son, he entitled Prodigal God, because his point is, and I think uh, beyond uh, uh, any kind of criticism, it just holds so much water to me, the one who's acting prodigally in the story is actually God, it's actually the father. And that's the contrast Jesus is drawing in the story over against the teachings of the self-appointed spokespeople for God, the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, in the psalmist's mind, all of this that we've been talking about this morning is a reason to bless the Lord, to bless the Lord or to praise, that can be translated, or to worship, to, a, to kneel in adoration before this Father God who is good and great and full of grace. Notice that in the opening part of the psalm here, he's actually talking to himself. That's interesting, isn't it? He's not saying, bless the Lord, people. Bless the Lord, Israel. He's saying, he does talk about that later, but it starts off with, bless the Lord, O my soul. Says it twice. He's talking to himself, urging himself, reminding himself to do this all-important thing. Have you ever talked to yourself? You know, when you keep messing up or maybe forgetting something important, you, come on, Monty, what's your problem? If you were to walk, follow me around in a day, you would hear me several times. I hate to admit it. Several times talking to myself about, get your act together. What are you thinking? Why did you forget that? You know, that sort of thing. Or maybe before, you know, uh, some important thing, uh, you're, you're talking to yourself. Uh, the, the, the little 10-year-old, you know, in Little League, before he gets up to bat, you know, he's like, all right, now, focus, 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 you know, follow through, level swing, you know, step into it. All the things he's been taught, keep your eye on it. You know, he's speaking to himself before an important interview. We, we, okay, you've got this. You've got this. There's nobody around you but you, right? You're urging yourself to do the right thing. That's what the psalmist is saying. Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. Worship the Lord. Adore the Lord. Me, oh, my soul. Now, we may not typically include praising God or blessing God in this category of things we need to remind ourselves to do but we do need to remind ourselves to do these things because they're for us. They're for ourselves. That's probably something we don't typically think of. Praising God, we think of as God sitting up there going, okay, praise me, praise me. And if you get, take that too far, it almost looks egotistical. In fact, that's stuck in the craw of a young agnostic C.S. Lewis earlier in his life because it seemed like God's demands for praise 
were because he was narcissistic or egotistical. And then he realized finally that praise isn't something God needs. He's God. He's limitless. He doesn't need anything, right? If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, he says in one of the Psalms. God doesn't need our praise. He knows that our praising him, our blessing him is good for us. It's not something so much God needs as something you and I need. Let me close with this other quote from a different piece by Ellen Davis, where she talks about this phenomena uh, in her you know, study of the Psalms over decades. It is strange, she writes, that we modern Christians speak so little of blessing God. Bruce Wilkinson's bestseller, this is from a few years ago, The Prayer of Jabez, finds in an isolated verse from Chronicles a guaranteed prayer mechanism for getting blessed by God. She writes, I'll leave his exegetical method alone, <laughs> but it is worth noting that in biblical prayer, the emphasis is overwhelmingly the opposite of Wilkinson's, not nearly so much on God's blessing us as it is on us blessing God. The psalmists claim that blessing God is a daily necessity, and if they are right, then our forgetfulness is costly. What could it mean to view blessing God as a daily necessity? The truth is that this cycle of receiving God's blessing and blessing God in return, this is the pattern of eternal life. The life of those who are wholly absorbed into God's life. And praise God that he's not only great and good, but he's a God of grace. And all that together makes him the perfect, ideal, heavenly father that we can trust. Thanks a lot.